There we go. Look at that. Come on. Yay. The old man done good. Could I just tell you just for a moment that um, Pastor Jermaine's little homily this morning about getting old, I, I kind of took personal offense to. You know, he's talking about his, his, his two gray hairs, and I'm just thinking, buddy, you just, don't, you just don't got nothing to talk about here. As a matter of fact, you keep talking ugly about your hairs, and they're going to get up, and they're going to leave. So you're not going to have to worry about shaving them off. They're just going to say, if you don't want me here, we'll just go. It will happen. I'm just telling you. All right. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of John this morning. You know, over the past few months leading up to November, we heard a lot of verbiage from so-called prophetic men and women who were making some prognostications. And I use that word because they obviously were prognostications and not prophecies because it didn't come true. Hate to be so blunt, but somebody needs to. So I begin to kind of assess some of my own words. And I say my words, but the words that hopefully God gave me that were indeed God's words that I've spoken over the past few years. And so I went back and began to look at some of the messages that I have stood in this pulpit and others and proclaimed over the past four or five years. Some of the titles included course correction. That God was coming to bring certain storms in our life to get us on the course that he wanted to correct us into. A message entitled groaning to glory. That God many times will not spare for our own pain in order to see his glory come forth. I spoke a message two years ago entitled new wineskins. That before God does a new thing with an individual or with a group of individuals called the church, he always prepares a new wineskin prior to pouring himself out afresh. And that wineskin is at its, place of, its point of maximum flexibility closest to the death of the animal from which it was taken. And then last year I stood in this pulpit and I spoke a message entitled, Out of Season. That we were about to enter into one of the greatest moments of being out of season of our lifetimes. And yet, in the midst of it, the church would find its greatest moment in season. That out would become the new in. I don't know about you, but I don't know how you get much more out of season than what we've experienced over the past 10 or 11 months. And yet, I... I have to say, I've never seen the church be more the church than what I've seen in the past year. Words like reach the city, win the city, touch our communities. You know, they've been great catchphrases, but I got to tell you, once the church got kicked out of its four walls and had to go online, the church figured out what it really meant to be the church. It only took a global pandemic as a catalyst for it to happen. But I'm enough of a sovereignty man that I believe that God uses everything according to his purpose and purposes and for his glory. Somebody say amen to that. But it begs a question, what now? 
What now? Yes, we're all waiting for the, the magic elixir of a vaccine where we can finally stop wearing this piece of fabric, go back to restaurants and scratch our nose. So happy we're going to be able to touch our face again and not worry about death. And yet, I feel like that God's got some things ahead for us. And he started speaking this to me in November of three things that he was about to release to us. Resurrection, restoration, and restitution. And for that to happen, he took me to the book of John. Now, you know this story well. It's the story of Lazarus. And what's very interesting to me in this story is how often we see the relational connectivity that Jesus has with this family. He says he loved them. As a report got to Jesus about his friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. What was it? It wasn't just, hey, Lazarus has got some, he's got some health challenges. It says, Lord, the one that you love is ill. Now, we all have had to respond to someone that's had an illness, maybe COVID. But when you get that word back that someone is ill, you get a word back that perhaps they've been hospitalized. And for this word to have traveled back to Jesus' ear, it wasn't just that he's got a cold. It wasn't just that, you know, he, 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 he strained something. No, no, no. It was serious for it to have traveled that far. And our response when we hear of somebody in need like that, it is to what? It is to get up from where we are and to do what? Go to them. We do something. And yet, what was Jesus' response? It was to do nothing. As a matter of fact, it says he stayed where he was with his disciples for two more days. You see, I believe that there's a process many times of resurrection that one God determines in advance what he's going to do. How many of you know God does nothing that he hasn't already figured out in advance what he's going to do? There's nothing random in God's world and by extension in yours. God has always had a plan, predetermined. But many times that plan involves delay, denial, and even death as prerequisite to resurrection. And let me say this to you by way of introduction this morning. Many times the greatest expression of divine love is found in delay. The greatest expression of love is found in not now. Not yet. Parents, how many times has one of your children come to you and asked for something that was far away and beyond something that they could handle at their age? A kid really thinks he can drive a car when he's 10 years old. How many of you know it ain't going to happen? 
by law or by parental permission. Delay. And yet, many times we struggle with that, don't we? I mean, some of us are taught that you just name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, declare it, decree it, and it's going to show up right now. And we see anything that involves a delay is something less than God's love for us. It's how we interpret it. The same way that your two-year-old or three-year-old interprets a delay, it means mom and dad don't somehow love me as much as I thought they did. And we have to discern many times because the enemy loves to try to get into this process of what is a demonic delay and what is a divine delay. Because many times we see a delay happening, we begin to get our, we, we get our Pentecost on. We begin to loose that bind and bind that loose and smite and carry on and rebuke. Christians spend a lot of time rebuking God. How many of you know it's a waste of time? You need to find out before you start rebuking who you're rebuking. Wow. And in that delay, it's dangerous. Because this is where despair and discouragement comes. It's where we lose courage. It's where fear has access to our lives and entraps us. And his disciples have heard this testimony and in the ensuing period of time, Lazarus expires asleep. And his disciples, not being real astute anyway, thought that literally it meant asleep. Jesus had to say, come on, guys. My man is dead. He dead. Now, that's not what they thought was going to go down. And he says, now we're going to go. It's like, why are you going now? Now we're going to go. And Thomas, Thomas, after he hears this, he says, well, fine, we'll go with you. We'll die too. How many of you have felt that fatalistic over the past 10 months? Wow. And culturally, this type of fatalism that is kind of in the air. And we get fearful. And you know, when people get fearful, they have one or two responses, don't they? Come on. Flight or? And we've seen both played out, particularly in our nation, over these past 10 months. And yet, we see so much biblical precedent for divine delay. In the book of John alone, the fifth chapter, the man at the pool of Bethsaida. Scripture records a very specific number, 38 years that this man had been there. My wife and I actually were there last February. They have excavated this particular pool. And it was in a very, very public place where probably Jesus had passed by this man hundreds if not thousands of times. And yet on this one day, he stops A day that had been determined by God when he had separated light from darkness all the way back in the first book. On this day, Jesus said, do you want to be well? 38 years of divine delay. John, the ninth chapter, 
A man blind from birth. Scripture says a man. So we know there's a fairly large ensuing period of time. And as good Hebrews, they asked the question, who sinned? This man's mother or father that he would be born this way. Because in their teaching and their understanding, every congenital defect was as a result of somebody messing up. And Jesus said, neither one. But after all of that period of time, after Braille school, after all of the inconvenience, after all of the accusations of there's something wrong with that family or the, otherwise he would not have been born blind. Have to endure all that for all those years. My goodness. And then Lazarus, two more days. And we've often wondered when. When? That's been the big question. And sometimes God denies, he delays, and sometimes he even denies. And many times when we see God denying something, our first response, rather than falling into the will of God, is we want to do more of something. It becomes about us again. We begin to, you know, do the 360, look in the mirror. What do I need to do less of or more of? Maybe I need to, to read my Bible every day. Maybe I need to pray louder. Maybe I need to ask God for a different tongue when I pray. Maybe I need to give a little bit more in the offering. Maybe I can do something that God might change his mind. Hmm. Wow. You see, God often doesn't do what we ask of him. Why? Because he's about something else in that moment that we don't have access to. We don't see the entire outworking of that which he is about. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, three times I asked that this malady, this thorn in the flesh, might be taken from me. And Jesus just told him very simply, no. No. Because my denial of your request is going to teach you something you would never have known otherwise. Oh my. Paul goes on to say, I will boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul willing to put up with, endure whatever this demon or whatever this physical malady was. Everybody, theologians for the ages have debated what this really was. But regardless, God had something he wanted to show Paul about who he was that he would never have gotten if he hadn't denied him. Oh, my goodness. And in the case of Lazarus, Jesus' denial resulted in the ultimate denial, death. And then the accusations begin. Mary and Martha, the Mary and Martha of other accounts. Martha getting up in his face, God, if you'd been here. She had enough faith to believe that if Jesus had been there, that he would have healed Lazarus, but not a great enough understanding of who he really was that he could raise him from the dead. And this becomes a discussion. 
If you'd been here, if you'd been here, Jesus said, show me where you've laid him. He took him to the tomb. And it's a mess. Folks are weeping. And Jesus, he sees that in, in, in his will, the pain that his will is causing. Folk very dear to him. And it says in the shortest passage of Scripture, the shortest verse of Scripture, Jesus wept. Do you realize that even in the determination of God, even to delay denial and death, Jesus was still moved in his heart by what he was about to do. He saw the pain that his actions were having on folk that he loved. You see, one of the greatest attacks of the devil in moments like this, if God really what? Come on, finish the sentence loved you there you go it was the great lie in the garden if God really loved you he'd let you have this knowledge as well he's withholding something from you but God had another purpose and then those that see even Jesus begin to weep they begin to accuse. Some of them said, could he, not he who opened the eyes of the blind men, have kept this man from dying? Wow. But the encounter in John 9, if you remember, what did God say? He said, this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What did God say to his disciples? What did Jesus say before they ever left for Bethany? It is for what? God's glory. It is for God's glory that God's son might be glorified through it. Now watch how the entire subject and object of the narrative begin to shift away from Lazarus, Mary, Martha, the horror of the moment, the need presented by this tomb. That all of a sudden, it wasn't about Lazarus. It became about Jesus being glorified through what he was about to do. Let me tell you, saints, this is not a nuance. This is not a subtle difference. This is the crux of the matter. Right here. It's not about what you need, what I need, what this nation needs. It is about God being glorified by being the answer. And what God will set up, listen to me, saints. God plays the long game. <laughs> and what God will set up in order that he might be glorified, he will wait as long as it takes. Wow. All the way up to death. You and I, as has the entire globe. We've lived in a culture of death for almost a year. In my lifetime, which by the way, you young upstart, you don't know what age is, all right? But I have to say that in, in, in my 60 some odd years, I've never lived through a moment like this of picking up media, and it's a new death count. 
How many folks have expired from this virus? And we've lived under this shadow. And every one of us have somehow been touched by this death in one way or the other. If not directly, then maybe indirectly through a family member, a friend who has expired from this. Maybe economically, maybe, maybe vocationally. But there's been some type of death that has affected almost the entire planet at one time. Not one state, not one nation, but the entire globe. Come on, folks. Do we not think God might be setting something up here? Do we not think that the God that put it all together is setting up this entire planet for the greatest outworking of who he is that we've ever seen in our entire lives? Because he's not a random God. He's not a mean God. He's a God that does everything with a determination to see himself glorified through it. My goodness. And you see, death, it has a unique smell. It's not really pleasant. When Jesus got to the tomb, he said, roll the stone away. And they immediately began to push back. Ah, uh, Come on, man, you really, woo, you don't want to do that. Because he's already been in the grave for four days, and uh, I, I don't quite know how, uh, he stinketh. That's the KJV. He smelled really bad. He funky. Let me ask you a question. What stinketh around your life right now? I want to give you a thought. That aroma is an incense for God. You know, we think about incense and we think about the priesthood and we think about, you know, the burnt offerings. We think about our prayers as incense going up to God. We, we think of all kinds of aromas that get to the nostrils of God that move him. Let me just tell you, there's another aroma that repels us but attracts God and it's death. We don't ever think about it that way because we have a, a human understanding and mindset. Death is something that we all are trying to do everything we can to avoid. And yet, that odor, it says to God, we're done. There's nothing else we can do, which begs the question, how dead is dead? You know, in, in the medical community, the point of death is continuing to be a moving target. It's not just a lack of respiration or the lack of a heartbeat or even now the, the, the lack of, of what has been previously measured as, as cognitive activity. But now the, 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 the neuro boys are discovering that maybe consciousness lasts a lot longer than folks thought. And so even now trying to pinpoint the moment of death is problematic. But how dead is dead? I think I've shared this story before, but back in the 1980s, prior to coming into ministry, I was in business. And I was not a good businessman. Man got to know his limitations. And I wasn't real good at it. And I mean, I was working three jobs. And we got this 
notification from the internal, the infernal, the internal revenue service. And it wasn't one of those envelopes that has a little green check showing through the window that makes you happy. It was the other kind with the white envelope that has, you know, not for private use kind of thing. And I opened it up and there was a tax bill in there for a few months of what was then my salary. And there was no Visa, no MasterCard, no line of credit. We were, and I remember coming to my wife and having a breakdown. I wasn't crying, I was laughing. I said, we're broke. We dead. We are the physical zombies, baby. Look at us, walking dead. We broke, we broke. Come on, we broke. I mean, and that's the last thing that a man wants to tell his wife and two children's is that they broke. Because there was no way I could fix it. A fourth job wasn't the option. And let me add before you say, Pastor Jim was a deadbeat. He didn't pay his taxes. No, it was a moving target of how they were assessing taxes at that time. And I remember just going to God and saying, I'm done. I've tried to prop this thing up. Dagon's been falling over. I've been propping him back up for years. And I'm finally done now. God says, now I can do something. Watch this. And within six months, not only was the tax bill paid in full, but we were fully out of debt. I had sold a business that wasn't sellable, and I was in full-time ministry all within a six-month period of time. And what was, what was prerequisite to the miracle? Death. Not financial ruin. <laughs> Physical death. And yet God says, now, when I do this and I get you in a place where you can now go into ministry full time for the princely sum of $9,000 a year, that was my first annual income as a minister. Church was cheap. <laughs> the righteous will live by faith, I guess. Lots of rice and beans, but that's a whole nother story. But the reality is, God says, I want you to be sure that I get the credit for this one. And not how astute you were as a money manager. And I tell that story every opportunity that I get. So that God gets the glory. But for you and for me, how dead is dead? How many of times when, when something that God is fully wanting to manifest his resurrection power in, we're there trying to resuscitate it, trying to do everything we can to prop it up, and God says, step away from it and let it start to rot. Because once the odor of its decomposition gets to my nostrils, I'm getting ready to show up and show off. I'm getting ready to show you what resurrection power is all about. My goodness. And you see, resurrection is something we don't talk about much in the church. Part of it is that the prerequisite for resurrection is death, and we don't talk about that either. And yet Paul was very clear in Corinthians 
to the church there, he said, listen, if, if, if there is no resurrection, we are the most pathetic creatures on the planet. We're pathetic. Because, boys, everything that we preach and teach is on the basis of Christ, res- not, not just crucified, but Christ resurrected. This is it. I mean, we talk about a lot of foundations of the faith. We talk about Trinitarian doctrine. We talk about soteriology. We talk about, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. and all. We talk about so many things, but we don't talk about resurrection much in modern pulpits. Because we're terrified to talk about what comes before it. And yet, it's a central tenet of our faith, ladies and gentlemen. Unique to the three monotheistic religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity is resurrection. You don't find it in in, in most religious systems and beliefs. And other religions have a whole lot of the other stuff that we have. Deities, sacred texts, codes of ethical living, rewards, punishments, liturgies, worship. And yet, one of the things that makes us unique is that we believe in resurrection. The buzz in the early church was resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. That's where he was and he's not there anymore. You and I, we're going to have resurrection bodies. We joke about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be cut when I get, I'm going to be looking good in my resurrection body. I mean, we kind of laugh about it, but let me tell you, it was the buzz in that first century church. And it was the, and it's interesting, it was this teaching that got, the, got, got those guys in the most trouble. Was teaching on resurrection of the dead. Why is that? Because of the power of this reality. And then here's Lazarus. What are we going to do with this guy? Can you imagine the post-resurrection Lazarus? I mean, I wonder what was going on with him for four days, but he comes out, and then all of a sudden, can you imagine on the streets of Bethany? That, that, that's him. How many, how many folks think they probably called him Mr. Lazarus at that time? Rather than, yo, L, how you doing, bro? No, it was Mr. Lazarus after that. I mean, folks see him coming down the street, they pass over on the other side. What do you think Lazarus was afraid of after coming out of the grave for four days? Somebody said, man, I'm going to mess you up. (laughs) You got to be kidding, man. (laughs) What you got for me? (laughs) Go ahead, because Jesus will just do it again. You see, you can't stop someone that's not afraid to die. That's for the very reason why Paul goes on to states that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because when that one is taken away, the enemy's got nothing left. This is why we need to understand the resurrection power of God. We need to teach it. We need to preach it. We need to walk in it. That's why Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, talked about this power. That Paul was praying that we would come into the reality of. It's like the mighty power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Wow. Lazarus, Jesus has done the heavy lifting. Lazarus, get out of there. Come forth. 
And yet he's still wrapped up, bound up in those strips of linen, cloth over his face. Kind of like some of y'all wearing cloth over you. Never mind. And he tells those present, what does he say? Unbind him. It's interesting to me. I mean, here God now has raised this man from the dead, was in a state of decomposition, and yet there was still something that required human assistance even after God had already done the heavy part. Unbind him so that he can run the race marked out for him. And saints, I believe that's the role of the church. We unbind people. We watch, we see people move from death to life through the process of conversion and regeneration. But the church still has a vital role to get people out of the grave clothes that they went in with. The tragic thing is you still see Christians that have been moved from death to life and they're still hopping around with their grave clothes on. With the same mindset, the same patterns of death and destruction. We need to unbind. And it starts, you have to do, do it for yourself first. Only the unbound can unbind. Wow. Resurrection. Restoration. And I'll only mention these just by passing because I'm out of time. But I believe one of the greatest challenges for the church in this moment is its reputation. And it's been tarnished, ladies and gentlemen. Some of the greatest infighting that's happened as folks have not understood the difference in being a Christian, a Christian in America and an American Christian. And they've, la- they've allowed their, 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 their partisan leanings to become some type of theology or ecclesiology. It has fractured the church. Not just the ethnic tensions that are obviously still very much a part of what we have to still see reconciled. And the prophets, as the mouthpiece of the church, they didn't help any. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the most gifted exegetes of the word and the greatest means of communicating it will not accomplish what the church needs in this moment. Paul wrote again in Corinthians, When I was with you, I I, I didn't just show off my new website. I didn't just preach you a beautiful sermon with alliteration. Finished in 32 minutes. No, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And there's none greater than resurrection. None greater. And I believe that God is wanting to birth the church into a new Pentecost. The church was birthed in Pentecost. It was birthed with the release and the revelation and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Let me just tell you, that which God birthed, he wants to sustain by the same power. Fully convinced of that. And I believe the greatest threat to the church are not the external forces, natural and spiritual, that everybody is so worried about. But I believe is building without the acknowledgement and power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that's the greatest threat to the contemporary church. Right there. That somehow we can build this beautiful tower 
this ecclesiastical structure, and it can ascend to the heavens. And we'll make a name for ourselves, and we'll have clicks and followers and likes. And you remember what happened to that tower. And you remember what happened to those folk. And it took Pentecost to take a language that was confused and, and, and dispersed to bring it back under one language of worship to, with the Holy Spirit. I believe God wants to do that same thing in his church. And I believe this grand disruption that we've all experienced in this past year, my greatest, I won't say concern, but I'm going to wrap this up and just be real clear. My biggest fear is we'll go back doing the same thing we did before. With our sanctified sociology of how to get people in these seats. Rather than relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to do what only God can do. And lastly, and I have to mention this because God told me to, is restitution. And the reason that I almost hesitate to say this is that whenever I speak these prophetic messages and there's something about resources beginning to move and flow, people tend to take that one piece away of, show me the money. I'm getting paid, baby. Some Holy Spirit stimulus money coming my way. So let me just help you. Please don't just take this one aspect away from this message this morning. But it is part and parcel of what I felt like God shared with me. The book of Job. God, God, God's own testimony about this man. There's no one like him. And now I'm going to rip his life to pieces. <laughs> I mean, come on. I don't know that, that God has ever proclaimed about any of us. Have you considered my servant, Eddie? Nobody like him. Or Jermaine or JC. No. So now watch this. For the sake of my reputation and my glory, I'm going to rip his life apart. And he did it. 41 chapters. Pretty awesome. Pretty gruesome. And then at the end, though, when whatever it was that Job was supposed to get hold of, God said, okay, that's enough. God did some things for Job. We see that he had twice as much as he had before because Job had lost everything. All of his wealth, his family, his friends, everything lost. Relationships around his life were restored. God didn't just make him whole. It says he made him wealthy. There was an unusual fertility. Ten kids. And I believe that that speaks to a rate of reproduction that God desires for the church. That there's going to be a rate of reproduction that I believe in an outpouring of this gospel, people responding to this gospel, churches growing and being planted, I think there's a rate of reproduction that we're about to see that's unprecedented. Not just in our lifetime, but in multiple generations. Generational promises. Very interesting detail of scripture here, but it says that Job had a couple of daughters. He named them. 
unusual. But it also says that they inherited along with their brothers. This is the only place in the Bible that living daughters, excuse me, that daughters inherited when their brothers were still alive. There's one other incident, but their brothers had passed on. And there was an appeal made so that the land could stay in that tribe and in that family, that an exception made that it could come to the daughters. But in this particular case, inheritance came to the daughters alongside living brothers. I believe it speaks to a couple of things. Number one, I believe that God is doing something to uniquely bless the daughters of the house. But there was such an overflow coming out of Job, the gratitude for who God was and how God had graciously restored all of this back to Job that he said, you know what, I'm going to set aside every cultural tradition around me and these young ladies, they're going to get everything that their brothers are getting. I believe that overflow is coming to us as well. There was a blessing on the latter part of his life, and it says he lived a long life, old and full of years. Wow. So, Pastor Jim, wonderful. So, can I expect all this tomorrow? Matthew chapter 4. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let me give you a word on timing. You've heard me say this from this pulpit before, but God is never impressed with our timekeeping. 365 days, 12 months, that doesn't move God much. But you see, the thing about the sun coming up is that That hard demarcation from darkness to light is impossible to discern. Because all of a sudden you just begin to realize it's not pitch dark anymore, but it's also not full light. Something is happening as the light begins to dawn. And I believe that the outworking of this message will extend across a period of a couple of years. I believe that we're seeing the dawn now. And I'm not tying this to a vaccine. Hear me. But I believe that we're seeing slowly the light begin to rise and the dawn begin to break upon us. And you have to have that same mindset. What needs the resurrection power of God in your life this morning, right now? Ask to know the way. What stinketh? around your life what doesn't smell right in your marriage your children your finances your relationships he's a resurrection God let me just tell you the reality is God's delay is a bit of an oxymoron because God is always right on time to reveal his ultimate purposes to us through a thing But what needs God's touch this morning? What's died in your life? What dream? What vision? Have you just let die? That God says, let it die. Step off. Watch me resurrect it. 
He's coming to restore that which has been damaged in restitution to what's been temporarily lost over this past season. And as you press into this word, I want you to hear what Lazarus heard from inside that tomb. Come forth. Come forth. Because that's what he's done on our behalf.